Good morning, church. Happy daylight savings time. Hopefully you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. Unless you have small kids, in which case I hope you enjoyed your 5 a.m. wake-up call because they don't change with the time, right? Uh, But good morning. If you're online, we want to welcome you and glad that you're joining us as well. In May of 2019, uh, Amanda Ellers, who was a healthy 35-year-old woman, was on vacation on the island of Maui in Hawaii. And there's a, on the north side of, of Maui, there's a forest preserve of several thousand acres. And uh, Amanda Ellers decided she was going to just go for a nice kind of mid-morning walk. Um, they had a trail that was two or three miles, but she was just going to go for a little bit of a stroll. And so she pulled her car up to the, uh, the trailhead and she thought, ah, you know, I'm not going to take my water bottle. I'm not going to take my phone. I'm not even going to be gone that long. And so Amanda just kind of set off on this, just really stroll through uh, the nature preserve. And uh, about 25, 30 minutes in, she decided, you know, I'm just, I'm going to take a little bit of a rest. And so she wandered off the trail, not even very far, but just a little ways off the trail to just sit down, kind of have some peace and quiet and to take a little bit of a rest. Now, people have described the vegetation in this area as so thick that you really need a machete to hack your way through if you get off trail. So she goes off trail and, and, and has her little rest and she gets up to go back to the trail. But the problem is with vegetation that dense, she gets turned around and, and it all sort of looks the same. And she doesn't remember which way the trail was from where she's at. She's only probably a few hundred yards at, off the trail at most. It's so close. The problem is, right, and sometimes we use this as a figure of speech, you can't see the forest for the trees, Right? We describe someone who's so engrossed in the details that they miss the big picture. But often that's a reality when people get lost in a wilderness scenario. Right? They don't see the big picture. They can't get a vantage point to see where they are at in relation to the trail. And that's where Amanda was at. So she trusted her gut and she picked a direction and she went. And what started as a 25 or 30 minute stroll ended up being a 17 day fight for her survival. Uh, She would survive uh, by drinking water when she stumbled across it, but mostly by finding wild guava that she would eat. If she happened to have a moth land on her, she would try to grab that and get a little bit of, of, of sustenance. At one point, she actually stumbled down a ravine and fractured a bone in her leg and tore the meniscus in her knee. And so she had to resort simply to crawling through the forest. 17 days in, she's incredibly malnourished. She's severely dehydrated and and kind of given up any hope of being found. And she crawls her way out on a little outcropping where she happens to have some visibility. And lo and behold, I would say by the grace of God, a helicopter flying over, over happened to spot her and she was saved and survived. Now, the the rescue team would later say in in that moment where she initially lost the trail, what would have helped, which she wasn't able to do, was to find a vantage point, to get up somewhere high where there's a big view, to see where she's at in relation to the trail. And often they will say, if you can find a good vantage point where you can regain perspective, often one is able to reorient themselves back to the right direction. Now, here's why I tell you that story. For the last two or three weeks, we've been talking about Romans chapter 14, where we've been looking at disputable matters. And by disputable matters, we mean those things that aren't clearly commanded or prohibited in scripture, but things about which believers might have differing convictions. 
Now, here's where I think that story relates. What I see often happen is where we have a bunch of disputable matters. Sometimes we miss the big picture of what God has called the church to, that we are to be a force of hope and transformation and redemption. We are to go and make disciples. We get off mission and we get distracted by all of these disputable matters until we find ourselves going, well, why are we even here? What are we even doing? And so what I want to suggest today is at the end of Romans chapter 14 is Paul comes back to this point of saying, here's the big picture. And Paul gives us a vantage point where you and I can reorient ourselves around what it means to be the body of Christ, about what it means to live and to function as the church. So as we get started in this, let me, let me kind of reframe the context. The church in Rome was struggling with disunity caused by differing convictions, Now, particularly in the church at Rome, uh, you'll remember that it's comprised of kind of two major groups of people. You have Jewish believers on the one hand and Gentile believers on the other. And Gentile simply means not Jewish. Now, what what was challenging about this is that the the Jewish people had very uh, strict adherence to the Old Testament food laws. And even after the coming of Christ, Jewish Christians often struggled with this question of, do I need to uphold the Old Testament food laws to be saved or, or can I trust Jesus alone? And often there was some conflict about this. Now, in in the church at Rome, you'll remember we've described it as as small house churches. Uh, Scholars tell us that it's likely that there were four or five small house churches in the city of Rome. And, And so those house churches actually might look more like your growth group. If you go to a midweek small group, you sit in a room with maybe 15, maybe 20 people at the most, and that was likely the size of of one of the house churches in the city of Rome. Now, in those those house churches, it was common, as we know in Acts 2, it says the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we know that it was common practice to sit down over a meal together. Now, when we say sit down over a meal, it's not like in the great room where we have 400 people around tables. It's like a small, intimate gathering in somebody's apartment where you're sitting, you know, knee to knee and you're eating food off a paper plate and you're just hanging out, right? 15, 20 people. So now imagine into that environment, you have Jewish believers who are eating kosher and you have a Gentile believer who brings pork sacrificed to a pagan idol and he sits down and he's like, so what are we talking about? Right? That Jewish believer looks at his brother or sister who's just brought in food that is by all accounts unclean. And now there's this, this butting of heads. There's this disunity that was a very real issue in the early church. And so Paul writes the, the, the book of Romans in part to encourage the early believers to pursue unity together. So he, here's our core question that I want you and I to wrestle with today. It's this. How can we navigate different convictions while maintaining unity and a focus on gospel mission, right? And and what Paul is writing to the church at Rome to say is, don't get so distracted by these disputable matters. Do you have to keep Old Testament food laws or not? Paul will will tell us if if that's where God has led you, keep the food laws. If you have freedom, that's fine too. That's what Paul will, will say at the end of Romans 14. But often what happens is we have these differing convictions and we get off mission and we find ourselves in disunity with one another. And so Paul writes to the early church to say, no, come back to a place of unity. And so I want to begin to help us see a way forward through and after disputable matters. And so to do that, I want to talk about some roadblocks to unity. I want to talk about how we can refocus our perspective and finally how we can begin to build a way forward. So let's talk uh, about roadblocks to unity using the early church in Rome as an example. I I want to suggest to you that one of their earliest roadblocks uh, was passing judgment. 
that we see in the early church. And, and I want to kind of flesh this out first because I think this same thing still happens today for you and I where we have differing convictions. So uh, Tyler, if you'll pop up that uh, diagram, please. So I think often what happens is, is this reality. Right? You and I have a unique personal background. Right, You have a story of redemption. You have a family that you belong to. You have a unique thing that God has been unfolding in your life. Right? And at some point, if you're a believer, you encountered the grace of God in an undeniable way and you've been following Jesus and that's part of your personal background. That's part of your unique story. Now, often what happens is out of your unique background come personal convictions. Right? That there are things that the Spirit has placed in your heart and life, convictions that He has given you about how you are to live your life. And often what happens then is those personal convictions become guiding principles. And a guiding principle becomes a sort of foundational thing in my life that, that I make decisions on, that, that I uh, begin to orient my life around. And sometimes these look different for us. You heard Pastor Steve mention a couple weeks ago that part of his personal background is a family history of, of alcohol problems. And so a personal conviction for him and his family has been to abstain from alcohol, right? And we have other believers for whom that's not a conviction. And that in, in biblical terms is one of those disputable matters where we're free to have differing convictions. Now, even a guiding principle based on a personal conviction, that's not wrong. That's a good thing. But he, he, here's the tricky thing. When I have a personal conviction that for me becomes a guiding principle, I'm pretty convinced it's right. How about you? Otherwise, you would probably have a different conviction. Now, the problem is when I have a guiding principle that I think is right and I'm convinced about, guess what? I think you should do it too. And so what happens is we begin to, to sort of pass judgment on another person and we pass judgment on them based on our convictions. And so what happens when we pass judgment, and, and this is the tricky thing about passing judgment, is we begin to make decisive statements about the heart, character, and motives of another person. So what's tricky about passing judgment is you and I have different convictions and, and, I, and I look at you and I go, if you were just more mature, you'd see it like I do, Right? Isn't that what we do? And we go, you know, I really just think this is an area of weakness in your life. You, you, you really need to pray that God would convict you on this. But that's a conviction God has given me. It's not necessarily a conviction that God has given you, right? So look at uh, Romans 14 with me. Let's begin to, to walk through this. Um, Tyler, if you'd put that up again, Romans 14, starting in verse 10. And there we read this. Paul says, you then... Why do you judge your brother or sister, right? There's that question. Or why do you treat them with contempt? He says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat as it's written. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another, right? Did, did you notice what Paul says? He says that the act of judgment is really a role that belongs to God, particularly in disputable matters. So Paul says at some point, right, verse 11, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That will happen when Jesus returns and God himself will be the judge of all people. So what's so tricky is when you and I start passing judgment is we place ourselves in God's divine role, the responsibility that he is to play as the only one who can judge impartially. It, do you kind of see how passing judgment can almost be kind of an arrogant thing? Like, who am I that I think I know well enough in disputable matters to judge the heart and life of another person? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't moments where a brother or sister is violating scripture that we don't call them back to truth. We do, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. 
but I'm talking about indisputable matters where there's freedom to have differing convictions. We need to recognize that it's God's responsibility to judge that person. It's my responsibility to help them along on their faith journey. And we'll flesh that out more too. The second roadblock though that I see here is is disagreeing with dishonor and disrespect. That becomes a significant roadblock to unity. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. After talking about judgment, he says, or why do you treat them with contempt? Contempt to me feels like a really strong word. But isn't this what we do? When we disagree with someone, it's really easy to move to that place of treating them with contempt. And, And I think this is one of the things that I'm sort of lamenting about our culture right now is Not only do we have disagreements, and disagreements can be okay, it can be good. Disagreements can be a moment of of working out what we believe. The challenge that I find is often where we disagree, we just get mean. Do you you see this? I mean, I watch people sometimes uh, online, sometimes in person. I've had conversations with all kinds of people who've had friendships and family relationships torn apart over some disputable matters. And what happens is we start to pass judgment on someone and then we just start attacking their character, right? Their heart's just bad. They're just not a loving person. And we put all of these things on them. And Paul says, why are you treating them with contempt? And, And by the way, as we read this passage, Paul will disagree. Paul will clearly state his opinion later on. He says, I am fully convinced in Jesus that all food is clean. You don't have to keep the Old Testament food laws. And yet Paul disagrees with honor and respect. Our challenge is that we struggle to disagree with dishonor and disrespect. The third roadblock that I see is this. We refuse to be mindful of others' convictions. We refuse to be mindful of others' convictions. Let me finish reading uh, Romans 14. 12 to 15. It says, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Verse 14, Paul says, I am convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. Right? Notice how Paul, he clearly gives what he believes. His conviction is different than the the Jewish believers who want to keep all the food laws. But he says this, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Paul says, don't don't be unmindful of the fact that you might have brothers or sisters with differing convictions right? You have convictions, you have guiding principles that you believe are right, and you might have a brother or sister in an area of disputable matters that have differing convictions. It's okay to be mindful of their convictions and be committed to the process of not placing a stumbling block before them, right? That's what Pastor Steve spent two weeks talking about. Don't become a trap or a snare that becomes a spiritual inhibitor in the life of another person. Now, here's this question. What is at stake with this? What if we just blow Paul off and go, you know what? I have freedoms in Christ. I'm going to live them however I want. What's at stake? I want to suggest to you that what's at stake if we ignore these roadblocks to unity is this. It's nothing short of harming the cause of Christ. Notice again what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 14. Look at verse 15. He says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Catch this. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. 
Right? If you go, oh, my convictions are different, and you place a stumbling block in the life of a brother or sister, you become a spiritual inhibitor in the work that God is doing in their life. And then Paul goes on in verse 16, he says this, therefore, do not let what is good be spoken of as evil. Now, let, let me flesh out what I think Paul is getting at here. When he says, don't let what is good be spoken of as evil, he's encouraging the early church at Rome to safeguard unity to push towards maturity in Christ. And he'll flesh this out more in a second. But you have to understand that Roman culture was a culture of disunity. It was very clearly divided by power and socioeconomic status. You had the emperor, you had the Roman governors and the proconsuls, you had uh, generals and military leaders, and then you had tradesmen and slaves, and those people did not interact. And yet the, the, the weird and crazy thing about the ancient church in Rome is you might have someone who is wealthy and powerful sit down in a house church and next to them is a slave. You guys, that did not happen in Roman culture. A slave and a person in power would never sit down at a meal together unless the slave was serving the one in power. And yet the church was this place where people of all socioeconomic backgrounds sat together and had a meal together. And Paul's saying, listen, don't let the church be destroyed by disunity. This good thing that God is doing, this redemptive and transformative thing that is happening where God is uniting people in the cause of Christ. Don't let disunity rupture that. And so the Roman culture looked looks at the church and goes, huh, they fight just like we do. Weird. The Christians are no different, right? We've got disunity. We've got power structures. So does the church. Paul goes, it is far too important to let that happen. Let, let me draw your attention once more to verse 20. He says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. He's addressing here the specific different convictions we've been talking about. But can I ask us a really tough question? What are you willing to destroy the work of God for? What is the argument that you want so badly to jump into about disputable matters and you just want to bludgeon somebody else with your perspective until they have to give in to what you believe, that you don't care if it ruptures relationship, you don't care if it derails the spiritual work of transformation that God is doing in their life, what are we willing to destroy the work of God for? Church, that's, that's a serious question. That has been one of the things over the last two or three years that I have lamented as a pastor as I have seen in moments relationships rupture and, and relationships fracture because people are willing to fight about disputable things to the detriment of relationship, to the detriment of the spiritual things that God is working in the life of another person. If we are willing to destroy the work of God for anything, we have lost our way and lost our priorities as believers. Okay, let's reorient consequences of uh, navigating disruptable matters poorly is harming the cause of Christ. And there's implications personally, as we just talked about in someone's life and communally. So how do we move forward from there? How do we begin to find a way through these disputable matters that's constructive? Right? And just like we talked about the story of Amanda Ellers, what I want to suggest to you, church, is we need to come up from the disputable matters. We need to step back, take a breath, and we need to find a vantage point. We need to refocus our priorities. We need to realign around the mission and the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul makes this statement in, in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. He says this. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
right? In the early church in Rome, those were some of their key issues. He says, it's not about that, but it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Did you just catch what Paul said are the priority matters in in the kingdom of God? He says, the kingdom of God is not about these disputable matters. It is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul says the priority of this spiritual movement that Jesus is doing is found in the significant reality of being made righteous. And what Paul describes when he talks about righteousness is nothing short of the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we talk about that word righteous, what we mean is that our life is brought into alignment with the words, ways, and wisdom of God. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in a new way of living in relationship with Jesus. And so elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What the kingdom of God is about is this hope that in Jesus, your past and your addictions and your hangups, we can be set free and healed from those and we can walk in righteousness and relationship with Jesus. Paul says also the kingdom of God is about righteousness, but it's also about peace. That in Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, we are brought to a a, a peaceful reconciliation with the God of all the universe. And what happens, church, is that when we are living at, with peace, at peace with God, it translates into a relational peace with one another. It doesn't mean that we see things the same way. It doesn't mean that there's total uniformity. But what it means is that where we have been reconciled, we become agents of reconciliation in the lives of other people. And then I love that Paul throws in joy. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy. That we as believers are to walk around with a deep-seated, deep-down joy. It doesn't mean you always walk around with a super cheesy grin on your face, right? It's okay to have a hard day. But underneath all that, joy becomes an anchoring thing. Why? Because joy and peace and righteousness are the fruit of the presence of the Spirit in your life. In other words, when you are walking in relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is guiding us and convicting us to walk in, in, in a righteous way. He's bearing the fruit of peace and he's bearing the fruit of joy. Those should be the defining characteristics of the body of Christ. And that is where we need to reframe our perspective to go, okay, in disputable matters, we can have differing convictions, but at the end of the day, what matters is righteousness, rightly aligned with the words, ways, and wisdom of God, being at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we walk in peace with God the Father and bearing the fruit of that deep-seated joy that bears witness to the power of the Spirit. In other words, church, let us not sacrifice the call and the commission of the gospel for the sake of winning arguments about disputable matters. Can can we take one more step of practicality in this and really talk about how do we build a way forward beyond disputable matters? I want to give you four things that I think Paul calls us to about building a way forward out of disputable matters. Tyler, if you will go back to that Romans passage, please. We're going to start in verse 19. It says, let us therefore make every effort. Notice how Paul says every effort, not just an effort, every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that would cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Let me pause there. Let me go back to verse 19. Notice how Paul says, make every effort to do what leads to peace. I love that he has that little descriptor, every. He doesn't say, yeah, you should kind of try. 
Or like if you try once and the other person's not receptive, like just give up. No, that, that idea of make every effort to me speaks of this reality of have a dogged determination to pursue peace with those with whom you might disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Remember, that's the context. He's talking about body life. He's talking about church life. I, I was struck by that reality to make every effort to do what leads to peace. And in effect, when, when I read verse 19, I don't know why, but when I thought about making every effort, what came to mind for me was putting little kids to bed. If you have uh, babysat, if you have a niece, nephew, your aunt and uncle, if you have been around little kids and have, have had to put them to sleep, I'm convinced that when kids are born, they are given a mission that's like top secret, like at all costs, avoid going to bed. This is your mission as a child. Commence, right? Because I, I have uh, one, of my, one of my children, my youngest, she will do whatever it takes to not go to sleep. You have a, a child like this? Have you ever done this? Right? The other night, we had a 40-minute meltdown because I gave her the wrong straw for her cup of water at bedtime. <laughs> As a parent, I'm like, Jesus, I need your grace. I'm about to lose my mind, right? It's like, that's my prayer in that moment. And, and, and so I'll, I'll put her to bed. Ten minutes later, I hear her door open. Then I hear the pitter-patter. She'll go, uh, Dad, I really need fresh water. I'm like, I gave you water last night. It doesn't go bad. It doesn't spoil. She's like, but it's got to be fresh. Okay, go get water. She'll get water. I kid you not. She'll go back to bed. Two minutes later, er, ah, can I have ice? I'm like, no, you cannot have ice. I don't have ice in my water bed. You don't need it either, right? Two minutes later, she'll come out and she knows that by this point that I'm ticked, right? And I look at her and I'm like, why are you awake? And she'll go, dad, I love you. <laughs> and I'm like, I love you too, child, give me a hug, right? And then it's like, but you got to go to bed, right? And she does whatever it takes. She is dogged in her determination not to go to bed. And every night it is an hour battle of trying to get this child to sleep, knowing we're both, she and I are both going to be grumpy in the morning if she doesn't go to sleep, right? And, and, and in my mind, they have that dogged, not giving up. They are determined, right? That's, I think, what Paul has in mind. Make every effort to do what leads to peace. So let me ask you this question. Is there someone that God has been convicting you, a brother, sister in Christ, that you need to make every effort to be at peace with? Where you have a relationship that's been ruptured by a disputable matter, and you hear the Spirit saying, make every effort to do what leads to peace. Be unwavering in that movement to do what leads to peace. And then Paul says this, he says, make every effort to do what leads to peace. And he says, and also to the mutual edification. That word edification, it sounds really intimidating, but it literally just means this, for the mutual building up of one another. In other words, live at peace with one another and encourage one another to pursue maturity in Christ. That as you live in unified relationship together, that we are helping one another push towards maturity. I love how Paul says it in Ephesians 4. Let, let me read this for you. This is Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Paul says this. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, from Jesus, the whole body, the whole church is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You heard me say uh, previously, I'm not telling you that Paul says, don't have hard conversations. He's not saying, don't, don't look at areas of disagreement and just try to get along. No, I think Paul is saying, don't be judgmental about areas of disputable matters. But elsewhere, he says, listen, you should speak the truth in love. 
It's okay to have a hard conversation, but the question is, are you speaking truth into the lives of one another out of a place of love that desires the flourishing, well-being, and spiritual maturity of your brother or sister in Christ? And I love how Paul says, as we do this, that Jesus brings us together in unity and that from him, the whole body is joined together and we grow together. How cool is that? If we're going to grow towards Christian maturity, we need each other in community. I have blind spots. I need people to speak truth into my life to call me back to the cause of Christ when I stray. We all need that church. And Paul says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to the mutual building up of one another, to be willing to speak truth into our lives, but out of a place of love and concern for the well-being of another. Going back to Romans 14, building a way forward. Number one, do what leads to peace. Secondly, mutual edification, speak truth and love into the lives of one another. Um, Third, I think Paul calls us to this, to help others uphold their convictions. So in Romans 14, uh, verse 20, Paul says this. He says, all food is clean, right? And again, that's, that's Paul's opinion. There are Jewish believers who disagree with Paul on this, but Paul is saying, I'm convinced all food is clean. But he says, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. 21, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause a brother or sister to fall. In other words, Paul is saying, be mindful of and help others uphold their convictions. Church, it's not my job to tell somebody how stupid I think a conviction is in their life. And I use that word stupid because that's sometimes the mindset that we have when we're judgmental. Is we go, well, that's dumb. You should just get with it. And we want to pass that judgment. We have to stop doing that. And where God has placed a conviction about disputable matters. And again, I'm not saying when it's clear in scripture, it's clear. That's disobedience. I'm not talking about disobedience. I'm talking about places where it's not clear that God has given someone a conviction. It is not your job to change that conviction. You can have conversations, but your job is to ask and to pray, how do I push that person towards maturity and Christ-likeness? Paul would tell you, if you have differing convictions, it's better to say, you know what, for your sake, I'm not going to enjoy the freedom in Christ that I have. Well, we're together. If it helps you push towards maturity, I'm also not going to eat meat or drink wine or whatever. That is Christian community that we are mindful of and aware of the needs and the well-being of one another. And we push forward in love in a way that encourages the spiritual flourishing of one another. Finally, Paul leaves us with this, building a way forward. Sometimes I just need to keep my convictions to myself, right? Notice what Paul says in verse 22. And I love this statement. He says, so whatever you believe about these things, these disputable matters, keep between yourself and God. And and what I think is important about this is, (laughs) I think in some ways we live in a day and age with social media where our social media platforms, those are the places where we release our PR statements about whatever's happening in culture, right? So here's my official statement on, and we feel like we always have to like post these things and make these hard statements. But sometimes Paul says, when God has a conviction on your heart and life and it's a place of conflict, sometimes it's better to keep that between you and God. I'm not saying don't have hard conversations. I'm not saying don't talk about your beliefs. I'm saying in an environment like this, a communal family environment in the body of Christ where you and I have differing convictions, sometimes it's okay for me to say, you know what? 
That's between me and God. I don't need to change your heart. I don't need to change your mind. That's God's job. What I'm gonna do is love you and speak truth into your life and pray for you and encourage you and uphold you and support you. But I have differing convictions and that's between God and I. And that's okay, church. I wanna leave you with three application questions. The first is this, who do you need to pursue peace with? That as we're we're talking this morning, God has laid somebody on your heart. That when we read that verse, make every effort to do what leads to peace, somebody came to mind. If that's you, I encourage you to begin to pray about the conversation that you need to have. Second question is this, what can I learn from someone with whom I disagree? And what I think is important about this question is it helps us adopt the posture of a learner. And it says, I'm not, my goal is not to change this person's mind. And again, right, we're talking in the body of Christ, right? I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm not talking about uh, upholding scriptural teaching when it's at stake. I'm talking about in the body of Christ, when we have differing convictions about disputable matters, what can you learn from your brother or sister? And about the a life of obedience God has called them to? And finally, it's this, how can I support others in their walk with Christ? Are you making every effort to help other people be built up? Make every effort, Paul says, to do what leads to peace and the mutual building up of one another. And I think this is one of the great switches of Christian maturity. That when we start on our Christian journey, we're saying, who's going to disciple me? Who's going to pour into me? Who's going to invest in me? As you move towards Christian maturity, more and more our thought process becomes, who am I serving? Who am I discipling? Who am I investing in? What does that look like for you? Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, Paul's word. I thank you for his boldness. I thank you for the direct way that he writes. And God, even as I read this this week, I found myself being really thankful for the diversity in the body of Christ. That you don't call us to uniformity. You call us to Christoformity. We're not to look like one another. We're not to be clones of each other, but we're to look like Jesus. And it's in Jesus that we find our, our, our unity. It's in Jesus and our connection with him that we find the peace and the joy and the righteousness that makes unity possible. And so, Father, I pray that as a community, that we would be a people who are living out what Paul says in verse 17, that we are pursuing righteousness in you, Jesus, empowered by your spirit. And I pray that we would be a body where when there's differing convictions that the scripture's not clear on, that we can be a people who love and pray and encourage one another in our faith journey. God, help us to avoid the roadblocks to unity that Paul identifies and let us be a people, Lord, who make every effort to do what leads to peace. And Father, now in this moment where we take communion together, let it be a celebration of your life, death, and resurrection for us. And let it be a celebration of our unity found in you, Jesus. Father, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.